talking a lot so you can find Judges 11. Okay, if you're there, Brother Tim, welcome home. Uh, come teach us. It is actually the... 20th year of powerhouse we've actually only had held 19 powerhouses because the year of covid uh we ended up having to to bypass that particular one because our state was so lovely with all of its regulations and junk uh but this is uh they started in 2003 it was the year i graduated high school so this is our 20th uh year of powerhouse be praying for that last year we had one of the biggest crowds we've ever had about 180 or so kids uh, just pray. Pray that God does something amazing. It works out very well for the uh, teenagers of New England right now. Right near the beginning of the summer is teen camp, which is a great way to get a kid kind of engaged into God's word because we remove all distractions. You can't have a phone. It wouldn't work anyways. There is Wi-Fi, but they pay for probably the cheapest Wi-Fi in the history of the world. On purpose, by the way, because they want kids to disconnect. And then right at the end of the summer, you realize, unfortunately, for those of you that are teachers, school is not that far away. Um, please don't hurt me for saying that. Um, but Powerhouse kind of ends out the summer. So just pray that God does something really big with that. Uh, this is, a before we jump in, a very cool thing that happened uh, over the last couple of days. Pastor makes fun of my, my zoo. And we, we, we've downgraded. We're down from about 36 animals down to about... 34 animals, yeah, so woohoo, we are making progress there, but I actually got to do a, a, an animal show at Mountain View Baptist Church on Friday night for their, it was the last night of their VBS, they were doing this uh, cool kind of Indiana Jones jungle theme, um, there was about 125 kids there, I brought about a, 10 of my animals up, uh, as far as I know, two kids got saved actually during that, that message and that lesson, just there's a reason I have all of these. It's not just because I'm obsessive. It's because I want to be able to do stuff like that. Churches don't do stuff like that. If you read through your Bible, the Bible talks about the serpent and sin somewhere around 60 total times back and forth. And that's actually what I did. I had two of my snakes up there talking about how sin starts off small, but if you just keep messing with it, it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it'll choke you out someday. And I have one snake that happens to be fairly large and growing rapidly. Um, it's just, it was a pretty cool event. So uh, just pray that God will open up a door there and I can do a little bit more of that. Judges chapter 11. We're going to do a really quick recap. I did actually watch Pastor's lesson last week. My wife and I were in an amazing little church right in downtown, the heart of Minneapolis, uh, last week. Brother Calvin Allen, who spoke here several times over the last few years with a, a youth conference. It's his mom's home church. Uh, he told me all about it. Great little church. But we actually tuned in to watch specifically Sunday school because I, <clears throat> I was hoping Pastor would finish this chapter. Thank you. Um, he didn't. But Jephthah is easily, of all of the judges listed in this book, he's probably one of the more controversial. Not necessarily because God raised him up from a terrible background. That's verses 1 through 3. We're going to do a little bit of an outline here this morning as we catch back up. Verses 1 through 3, we are introduced to him. Again, God is the one that gave Jephthah this title here in verse 1 it calls him a mighty man of valor that's God giving him that title that's not Jephthah giving himself that title that's God doing that in spite of we find out here his own family rejected him because of his parentage okay so we've got this unique guy but that's not why he's controversial he's not controversial because of what he does verses 4 through 8 his own brothers and his family and the men of his village that he had had to leave call him back and ask him to step into a leadership role. Verses 9 through 11, his response is, I'll do it, but I've got to be in charge of everything until I die, basically. 
And this is kind of a, he's put in a very unique position. Verses 12 and 13, he's actually given the position by the Gileadites. Verses 12 and 13, he sends a message to the king of the Amorites, the enemy that has been attacking Israel. They've got their entire army on the other side of the river. They're all ready to go. And Jephthah's just saying, hey, what exactly are you about to fight us for? By the way, is that a, is that a logical question? You got an entire army staged against you. Hi. Why are you here? I, where I live, I have no trees in my yard. In the fall, that's great. Right around now, it's awful. I, there is nowhere you can go to escape. It just, it just doesn't happen. Uh, the other day, my uh, youngest were out playing, and we have a little, uh, little playscape. Got a slide and all that stuff, and has one of those little houses in it. Two minutes after they got outside, they were in there. It was like 90 degrees, a million percent humidity, and they're drenched with sweat because they're the grossest little human beings in the history of the world. And they have to, because we have nowhere to hide. But the nice part is, again, in the fall, I don't have to rake anything. The only thing I ever have to rake is actually my neighbor's tree that's on the other side of the road. Some of that blows over. But every solar company in the Northeast comes to my house 45 times a summer. We see them coming, and now we just clip the dog out and let her go. She's the most lovable floofball you'll ever meet, but she's 95 pounds and barks like a beast. And I just send her out, and it scares them away. Why? Because I'm tired of, why are you here? Is it solar? Okay, thank you, goodbye. It's that or Jehovah's Witnesses. They're the only, maybe they're the same group. I don't know. Um, But after a while, you figure out why somebody's coming like that. The Amorites are all stationed and parked here, whole army, right across the river. And Jephthah's like, why are you here? Well, if you actually look, the king of the Amorites says, well, we want our land back. You guys stole it in the first place, and we want it back. Verses 14 through 28, we spent a long time breaking this down a few weeks ago. Jephthah's response to the king, where he actually goes through and historically breaks down all the reasons this belongs to us. And it boils down to one thing. We want it. With God's help, you can't have it back. Which, by the way, spoils go to the conqueror. That's just how life works. And at this point, it's also been centuries since they lost. That would be, again, like King Charles of England coming back and saying, hey, so the East Coast used to be called Virginia. I want all of that back. Huh. Come get it. You know that's exactly what would happen, okay? Every redneck from Virginia on down would pull out their entire ammo store and be like, come get it, bro. And and we'd all be moving there to sit with them because we're not allowed to have half those guns here, okay? But it's not going to happen. And he lists all this. By the way, as I was doing some homework, Pastor and I were talking about some of this this morning. In Jewish tradition and history, they are very, very big on their, their, we would call it lore, where they've kind of filled in some blanks in the Bible, I'm not a huge fan of that, right? But the Jewish tradition is very, very big on that. There are a lot of ancient Jewish historians. We're talking people that would have been writing in a similar time to Jephthah that actually knock Jephthah for not knowing his Bible. We've already talked about the vow he made to kill whatever comes out of his door to greet him when he gets home, that he must not have known his Bible because the thought is, what if a dog had greeted him? That would be a a dirty sacrifice. The Jews were not allowed to offer a dog, correct? But if Jephthah didn't know his Bible, how's he know all of this? 
because that's in the Bible. We can't fill in the blanks, by the way, with the Bible. We can't. If God left it open, he left it open, and we can speculate, and that's kind of what they've done, but they've taken that speculation and almost made it like gold standard. Does that make sense? Pastor and I like to use the word, oh, more me, visiology. I'm giving you some historical, sometimes scientific, some, some evidence, but I can't prove what I'm saying. And I don't want you to hold fast to, well, Brother Tim said this. I'm a doofus, and I'm the first person to admit that. My mom had a lovely habit of telling everybody I was an idiot in front of everything, okay? And I'm okay with that. But there are a lot of Jewish historians that think that Jephthah didn't know his Bible, but I believe verses 14 through 28 prove he knew his Bible. At bare minimum, he knew the book of Joshua real well. Real well, okay? That's verses 14 through 28. We're almost caught up here. Uh, Verse 29 Verse 29 is real simple here. This is just Jephthah getting the army together. King of Ammon didn't like his response. Just decides, you know what, I'm, I'm going to ignore your claim to this land. Which, by the way, was a rightful claim to the land. We won. It's ours. It's been ours for over three centuries. The king of Ammon didn't like that idea. So Jephthah gathers the army. Verses 30 and 31. This is where Jephthah makes his vow. And we are going to read this as we move forward. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said... If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, I don't believe any of us can argue. This was pretty rash vow here. Because look at how it's phrased here. Whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house. He didn't say whosoever. Or whomsoever, what? He's fully planning on this being an animal. Am I okay with making that statement here? When you're using a term like whatsoever. Now, in today's world, unfortunately, with all these pronouns and gender mix-ups, a what may be a very valid thing in in, in connection to a person. But 3,700 years ago, it wasn't. There was boys and there was girls, and that was it. Because that's the way God made them, okay? By the way, it's still that way. Just throwing that out there. This junk really drives me nuts, okay? But this statement here, whatsoever cometh forth, Jephthah's brain, his mind is given to us in the word of God. He's fully planning on this being an animal. But again, one of the things that the Jewish historians knock him for is, what if this had been an unclean animal? Like a dog or a camel or something that they're not allowed to sacrifice. You do realize Jephthah would have had access to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy telling him what he's allowed to and what he's not allowed to sacrifice. So Jephthah still is making a somewhat rash decision. He's clearly not thinking, what if it's my wife? What if it's my daughter? That, that, that must have never run through his brain. Okay? When I go home, nine times out of ten, the first thing that greets me is Sophie. 95 pounds of floof. And if anybody in my family was going to have to get sacrificed, it's the dog before my wife or girls, hands down. My dog is not one of my children. She's part of our family, but not in the same level. Are we okay? We all love our pets. We take care of our pets. But we all recognize they're not the same level as blood and flesh family. Whatsoever. He's planning on this being an animal. Again, We can give him at least a little bit of a knock. What if this had been an unclean animal? 
But the thing that the Jewish historians write, what if it was a dog? People didn't keep dogs as pets during this era. But what if it had been a camel or a, a donkey or some other random unclean animal? And here's the weird part about whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house. Guys, I have 34 pets counting the dog. He wouldn't have had lizards and snakes and millipedes and tarantulas and geckos and all kinds of... What kind of animals are coming in and out of his house that he was thinking of here? Like, bro, get a barn. Like, you ever thought about that for a split second? Like, what is just walking in and out of his house? He's thinking, hey, that'd make a great sacrifice. That's a weird home, okay? I just, that's how my brain works, okay? Verses 32 and 33, God gives victory. By the way, when God makes a promise... He keeps it. We talked about that in detail. And God promised he was going to give Jephthah the victory, and he does so. You ever thought about this? And I'm, I'm, I'm going fairly quickly here, doing all kinds of random recap. God already promised Jephthah that he'd win. Why did Jephthah need to make that vow? You ever thought about that? You ever paid attention to the basics of, like, negotiating? Jephthah offered more than he needed to. All God needed him to do was be willing to go. But he made an offer bigger than God required. You ever watch the show Shark Tank, right, where it's all these people with their inventions, some of which are horrific and dumb and boring, and these billionaires offering them, hey, I'll give you, you know, this much money if I can have this much stake in your company. There's been a handful of times where some Lovely geniuses, well, how about I give you, and they offer more stake in their company than the guy originally wanted. Sure. That's stupid. That's bad negotiating. Jephthah did that. God already said he'd give them. He said, I deliver them into your hands. You're going to win. By the way, God always keeps his promises. He is the God who cannot, cannot lie. So if he promised that, Jephthah's like, hey, well, by the way, let's do this on top of that. Jephthah's a really bad negotiator. If we can give him any kind of a knock, he offered more than he should have, okay? Verses 34 and 35 is where we get into the main portion of what we want to finish up today. Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house. He's won the battle. He's defeated everybody. He's coming home. And if you haven't marked this already, please do so. It's the second half of verse 34. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. She's celebrating dad's victory. There's a good girl here. She's excited that dad won. Right? Pastor and I are going to be doing another powerlifting competition in a couple of weeks. When I get home that day, I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to need a shower, a cheeseburger, and a nap. In that order. Just thinking about the order for a second there, okay? Shower, a cheeseburger, and a nap. I can guarantee you, I'm going to have at least two little girls that are very excited that I did what I did. They have no clue what's happening. All they know is they saw me on YouTube, and that just, whoa, dad was on TV today. Papa was on TV today. And they're going to be so excited. Dad, I saw you do this. How many, how many weight was that? That's the question Ellie will ask me. How many weight was that? A lot. Wow. <laughs> Jephthah's daughter, who, by the way, if you ever paid attention, she doesn't have a name. She's never named in here. She greets dad with timbrels and with dances. She's celebrating dad. He just won this victory. 
comes home and his daughter's just elated, celebrating, dancing around. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. We talked about this several weeks ago. Put yourself in Jephthah's frame of mind here. He just won a massive battle, the largest of his generation. He's the victor. He's coming home. Mizpah is in Gilead. That's not in Tob, where he had had to run away to. He is home. He's excited. Can, can we be human for a split second? He probably forgot about his vow. You spent days fighting an enemy. Is your vow the first thing that's on the top of your mind at this point? No. But as soon as he sees his daughter, all of that elation, all of that excitement, all of that happiness just comes crashing in. And Jephthah recognizes his foolishness. Look at the end of verse 35. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. Could you imagine the sheer level of just thought? That, you ever been in one of those moments where your mind is just going and going and going and going and going and going? And when it finally slows down enough for you to comprehend all the things you just thought, you basically fall asleep. That happens like for me like every night. My brain just doesn't shut off. Jephthah's got to be running through every single avenue in his head. How can I get out of this? He's human, correct? It's his only daughter, Correct. He had to have been thinking, mind racing, how do I get out of this? But look at his response. I have opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. That's a mighty man of valor. He's about to do one of the hardest things listed in your Bible. But God makes promises and we expect him to keep it. We make promises to God. And we don't expect God to call us out on those. Well, I'm just human anyways. That's not an excuse to quit. That's not an excuse to give up on the promises that you made. We fail, yes. But our goal should be to not fail. And Jephthah's kind of an example of that. By the way, not a great example. We're going to have a, a youth conference coming up. Every message to teenagers ends up with one or two of the same basic illustrations. Teenager made a decision for God, did the right thing, and now as an adult, they're doing amazing things for God. Or the exact opposite of that. Teenager made a decision for God, chose not to, and their life is destroyed. You can be an example either way, good or bad. It's your choice whether or not you're going to be a good example. Jephthah made a foolish vow, yes. But he kept it. Which means God still chose to call him a mighty man of valor. Because he did the hard thing. He did the right thing. Will you and I one day have that same title before God? Mighty man, mighty woman of valor. Because we chose to do the right thing. We chose to do the hard thing. Because we made a promise to God. And we decided to keep it. The Christian life is not always easy. It is all ups and downs. And sometimes when you're climbing that mountain and you start climbing and you feel like it's going good and then all of a sudden you just slide right back down and you're back in the pit where you started, you feel like quitting. You feel like giving up. 
but I've opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. You can't stop. You have to keep going. Why? Because we've got people behind us watching. I joke about this class being old people, but look around. We're old people. You can be mad at me all you want, but there's a lot more gray and white hair in this room than anywhere else in this building combined right now, okay? And those of you that diet, we know it's underneath there, okay? <laughs> we can't quit because all the people in that end of the building are watching. Right. We're talking about our teenagers. We want our teenagers to go on and do something for God. We want our teenagers to do something for God now. We have to do something for God to give them an example to follow. I've opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. Where do you stand on that? I'm not gonna end here, but it's something you need to, if you haven't marked it in your Bible, do so. Because this should be the prayer of every Christian. Yes, sir. I've opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. God, I'm gonna make you a promise that I'm going to do right, even when it's hard. I'm going to do the hard thing because I know it's right. You and I do that and we'll run our race with patience. We'll finish and we'll hear that well done thou good and faithful servant. If we choose to follow this. Look at verses 36 through 40. It's the last section of this particular chapter here. And she, this is Jephthah's daughter, said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man. And let's pause. We're going to finish the last portion of this verse in verse 40 in a moment. A lot, again, I have to, in this instance, I do actually have to refer to Jewish history a little bit. We're given, this young lady's not given a name, and she's not directly given an age, but because of the information, this idea of bewail my virginity, gives the idea that she is of a marrying age, but because of dad's vow, she'll never be married. Are we okay with that concept right there? So a lot of Jewish historians put her anywhere between the ages of 16 and 20, okay? Uh, the idea of a young lady in Jewish culture getting married much below 16 is kind of absurd. There's not a lot of evidence to prove that. Uh, so she was somewhere between the ages of 16 and 20 years old. And pastor did amazing job talking about this last week in verses 36 and 37. This young lady's faith is kind of mind-blowing. But again, to kind of reiterate in my own words what he said last week, where did she get this from? From mom and dad. It's exactly what I just talked about. She had a dad who made statements like, I have opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. With what she follows up here in verses 36 and 37, that must not have been the first time she's heard something like that from her parents. It was a regular example and she was willing to do what God wanted her to do, even though it was incredibly difficult. Now, she asks a request of her dad. Give me two months. Me and my companions, we're going to go up. We're going to make mourning. The Jewish culture is very different than ours, okay? When we have, uh, when someone passes away, we have a funeral. The whole thing lasts an hour, two hours, 
and everybody kind of goes home and deals with grief on their own terms. In Jewish culture, grief was a big community event and sometimes a really long community event. Uh, funerals could last a week or two. And like everybody took days off work and we're talking all day, all night, morning, to sun up till sundown. You just went and, and cried and bemoaned and wailed. And it was, uh, if you meet Jewish people today, they are, emotions are, are big. Okay, we use the term, they wear their emotions on their sleeve. They're on both sleeves, front, back, legs. They got a hat on, it's in their beard. The, the emotions are just part of life. Okay? We put on the whole armor of God, they put on the whole armor of emotion. Okay, When they love, they love big. When they hate, you're dead. By the way, that's quite literal. If a Jewish person gets saved, they'll have a funeral for you. When they hate, they hate big. When they mourn, they mourn big. She mourns the fact that she's never gonna get married and have kids for two whole months. Why? Because according to the Old Testament, a Jewish lady's highest calling was to be a wife and mother. Why? Because according to the promises of God, she may be able to bear the Messiah. And that was a promise they were all looking forward to. She's never gonna get that opportunity. So she asked for two months to bewail her virginity. Dad concedes and does just that. Look again at verse 39. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. Again, top of verse 39. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. What was his vow? Let's go back here. A uh, couple, couple verses. Look at verse 30 again. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt without fail, deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now here's where I mentioned earlier that Jephthah tends to be a bit controversial. Are human sacrifices okay according to God? No. Last week, Pastor gave the, the, if you will, contradictory statement of, of what happened with Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham, offer your son. But what did God do in that instance? He provided himself a lamb. Giving, by the way, the father of the Hebrew nation, the concept that human sacrifice is not okay. Go with me here. Uh, let's see. I want you to go to Jeremiah. We're going to bounce around just a bit here. Okay. We need to look at a couple verses. Jeremiah. We're going to look at one verse here, chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. <clears throat> Jeremiah 19, look at verse number five. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither it came into my mind. Think God's okay with human sacrifice? No, in fact, he's straight up condemning Baal's human sacrifice. Am I correct in that? Right? So the, here's where this becomes a bit controversial. Did Jephthah kill his daughter? Here's the sad part and the hard part. I got to give you some bishology. I put a disclaimer on bishology earlier because there's a massive amount of history and Bible commentation that goes both directions here. God is very anti-human sacrifice. He condemns it repeatedly throughout the law. 
Jeremiah's written hundreds and hundreds of years later, still condemning the practice. So would God allow Jephthah to do this in spite of the fact that he hates it? I'm going to give you one other train of thought. This is not original to me. This is actually original to several very noted Bible commentators. Go with me to Exodus chapter 38. Exodus chapter 38. This is where Moses is giving the law. Anybody remember, who was the law explicitly written to? Joshua. We covered that. In Exodus chapter 19, the Bible tells Moses to write it in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua specifically. Just thank you for not paying attention. I appreciate that very, very much. Okay. Exodus chapter 38, look at number verse number 8. Um... Yeah, here we go. And he made the laver of brass and the foot of it brass uh, of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This concept here of women assembling at the door of the tabernacle of congregation actually becomes a repeat thing. You see it again in 1 Samuel chapter 22. It's these women that basically devoted themselves to the service of the Lord and they assembled at the tabernacle. One of the most famous women in your Bible to do so was Anna, the, the really old lady that met Jesus eight days after his birth. She was one of the women that assembled at the door of the temple. So these women were, in, like in Anna's case, a widow. In other cases, it was young ladies who had never been married that just decided to devote themselves to the service of the Lord. Are we okay? There are some Bible commentators that actually believe that that's what Jephthah did here. With the fact that God is so anti-human sacrifice, and by the way, you should thank God that he is, because we're here today. Could that have been what he did? Maybe. But my, when I read the Bible, I'm going to give you my opinion. Bishology, my opinion, verse 39, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and his vow was to offer it a burnt offering. Amen. At the same exact time, though, God's anti-human sacrifice. Did he allow this? I'm not going to answer. Bible says he did according to his vow, which he had vowed. But here's part of that vow. Let's reread that. It says, shall surely be the Lord's. Most of the time, including the introduction of Samuel into the service of the Lord, included a burnt offering. Could he have offered a burnt offering and his daughter as a, one of the women assembled at the tabernacle door where she served for the rest of her life serving the Lord? It would also give some credence to what's happened here in the end of verse 39 and 40. Daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. They went back to commiserate her virginity every year. There is no known feast or celebration of Jephthah's daughter in Jewish culture today. None. Which means this celebration, this lament in verse 40, was a short-term or temporary celebration. Are we okay? Which could have been during her lifetime. And then when she and her friends passed off the scene, it no longer existed. 
There is record that it did happen, but the record to the best of my research only lasted about 30 years. It has not been practiced, by the way, until 2008. A Jewish rabbi in New York City reestablished the practice in 2008 for the first time in over 3,700 years. I'm not going to answer here. Somebody asked me, Mrs. Gerber asked this morning, what did he do? I'm not telling you. Because I don't know. Because God doesn't allow human sacrifice. He considers it an abomination. So did he allow Jephthah to do that? Would Jephthah still be a mighty man of valor if he committed an abominable level sin? I don't know the answer. So I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to leave it up to you. But let's finish out Jephthah's life in the next 90 seconds. Look at Judges chapter 12. The men of Ephraim, by the way, that's why Pastor didn't cover this last week. He wanted you all to be mad at me, not him. Uh, Judges chapter 12, look at verse 1. And the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and didst not call us with thee? We will burn thine house upon thee with fire. The Ephraimites, these are the same guys that every time Israel's gone up to fight, they don't show up, but they get mad that they don't get invited. So now they're like, hey, you didn't call us. We're going to burn your house down. Okay, look at Jephthah's answer in verse 2. And Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I called you, ye delivered me not out of their hands. I did call you. You didn't show up. And when I saw that ye delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are ye come up against me this day to fight against me? In verses 4 through 6, the men of Gilead, that's Jephthah's people, he's in charge of them, go to war and have... So Jephthah gets done with the war, has to complete his vow, and I'm not going to go into any more detail on that, and immediately follows that up with an Israeli civil war and wins. The Ephraimites were so upset, their claim in verse 1 is, you didn't call us. Jephthah's like, I did. You didn't show up. Well, we're going to kill you anyways. Try it. So they did, and they lost. And jump down here into uh, verse... Uh, verse 5, and the Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites, and it was so that when those Ephraimites, that which were escaped, said, let me go over, that the men of Gilead said unto them, art thou an Ephraimite? If he said, nay, then they uh, said they unto him, now say Shibboleth, and he said Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Uh, then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan, and there fell at that time of the Ephraimites 40 and 2,000. So they, they actually win this battle. There's a handful of them left, and they give them an acid test, if you will. And that's not actually like taking acid, okay? An acid test is like proving whether or not somebody is who they say they are. And it was the idea of pronounce this word. Shibboleth has been translated in one of two ways. It can either mean an ear of grain, like as in corn, or water. Basically, it's the name of a a creek or water area. And the Ephraimites couldn't pronounce it properly. What is the bubbly drink that we drink? What do we call a a, a Coke? We call it a a soda. You go to the Midwest and it's a pop. And it's pop, pop, It's an O first off, not a ah sound, pop. We have different names for the same thing. There's one small chunk of Massachusetts and parts of Maine that still call it a tonic. 
You go down south and everything's a Coke. You can get a Coke Coke, an orange Coke, a Dr. Pepper Coke, a root beer Coke, everything's a Coke. It's the same name for the same thing. That's literally what they're doing here. What do you call this? And they couldn't pronounce it right and they killed him. By the way, we have this, this concept has been taken straight from the Bible and used throughout almost every major war in all of human history ever since. It was used in World Wars I, World War II, to prove whether or not someone was German, specifically because they couldn't pronounce certain words the same way. Have you ever heard somebody speak German? They sound angry all the time. So they'd ask them, how do you say this? And they'd try to pronounce it in English, and they'd shoot them on the spot. That's exactly what Jephthah does, does here. And then verse 7 is the end of Jephthah's account in the Bible. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then died Jephthah the Gileadite, and he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. I think it's key, and I'm going to finish here, where Jephthah ends up being buried. He was buried at home in Gilead. He got kicked out of his family because of his lineage. By the way, could he help that? Did he have any control over who his mom was? No. But he ended up a hero at home. Why? Because he was willing to do what God needed him to do. The book of Judges boils down to one simple thing. Are we willing to do what God needs us to do when God needs us to do it? Are we willing to step up? Are we willing to do the hard thing so that God can use us? That, I can't answer that, just like I can't answer the end of this vow with Jephthah, because you have to decide that answer. You have to decide that answer today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, and every day until you get to meet Jesus. Are you willing to do what God wants you to do? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us.